0: The rest of you want to take out your sermon outline, The Man Who Would Be King. We will be in Esther chapter 6, we a little more than halfway today, and uh, we have this fascinating passage uh, about what seems to be uh, an unusual event, and so we're going to go through that together, but let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, as we study this uh, strange and wonderful and difficult book, uh, we pray that you would give us understanding. Help us to see how you work and remind us that you use ordinary people like us to carry out your work, uh, even when we're not sure what we're doing. Uh, Help us to understand your providence, even in the ordinary things of life. For this, we need your grace. By our spirit, give this to each of us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. The Man Who Would Be King. How many of you have seen this movie? Oh, just a cu- couple of you. It's an awesome movie. Um, it's a 1995 film adapted from the famous short story by Rudyard Kipling. And it tells the story of Danny Dravat and Peachy Carnahan two ex-soldiers in India when it was under British rule. And they decide that India is too small for them. And so they head off to Kafiristan in order to become kings in their own right. And Kipling himself is a character uh, in the story, and he's there at the beginning and at the end of the story. And so the story starts while working uh, as a correspondent in the offices of the Northern Star newspaper, Kipling, who's in the movie, is played by the great actor Christopher Plummer. He is approached by this ragged, seemingly crazed derelict who reveals himself to be his old acquaintance, Peachy Carnahan, who's played by Michael Caine. And Peachy tells Kipling the story of how he and his comrade-in-arms, Danny Dravat, who's wonderfully played by Sean Connery. So you have three amazing actors uh, in here, Christopher Plummer, uh, I think it's Sir Michael Caine, and Sir Sean Connery. And uh, they traveled to remote Kafiristan, in what would be the northern uh, part of modern-day Afghanistan. And there they became gods. And there they lost everything. See, a few years earlier, this pair of rogues had met Kipling at his office at the newspaper. And uh, after essentially a, a night of indulgence, They sign a contract pledging mutual loyalty and swearing off drink and women until they achieve their grandiose aims. And so Peachy and Danny set off on this epic uh, overland journey going north beyond the Khyber Pass, traveling by night and avoiding villages, fighting off bandits, blizzards, and avalanches into this unknown land of Kafiristan, which literally means land of the infidels, in this case, land of the non-Muslim infidels. And on their travel, they chance upon a Gurkha soldier. Gurkhas are famous uh, Indian soldiers that served the British uh, army and known as among the toughest soldiers uh, in the world. And they chance upon this Gurkha soldier who goes by the name of Billy Fish. And Billy speaks English as well as the local languages. And it's he who's acting as a translator and interpreter of the local customs and manners who smooths the path for Peachy and Danny as they begin their rise, first offering their services as military advisors and uh, army trainers and war leaders. And they go to the chief of this much-raided village. And Peachy and Danny muster a force to attack the villagers' most hated enemies. And during the battle, Danny is struck by an arrow that seemingly sticks out of his chest. And he doesn't notice it, and he keeps on fighting. And all the tribesmen on both sides believe that he must be a god for not having died. And in the middle of the battle, they all stop fighting, and they bow down, and uh, they fall down to the ground and start worshiping him. In fact, the arrow is stopped by a bandolier of ammunition that's hidden under his clothes. But uh, they all follow him, and as victory follows victory, all the defeated are recruited to join this swelling army. And finally, there's no one left to stand in their way, and so they're summoned to the holy city of Secondergoel. And there, the head holy man initially sets up a reenactment of the arrow incident. And uh, when Danny flinches, uh, all the holy monks grab him and they tear open his shirt so the head holy man can stab him in the chest in order to pinpoint whether he's actually a man or a god by seeing whether he bleeds or not. But when he does that, they're stopped by Danny's Masonic medal given to him for luck by Rudyard Kipling. And by coincidence, the symbol on the medal matches that of Seconder. Remember, they're in the holy city of Sakandergol. Sikander, otherwise known to everyone else as Alexander the Great, who had apparently passed through Kafiristan twenty-two hundred years ago, and who promised to return. And the holy men are convinced that Danny is the reincarnation of Sekonder. And they hail him as king, and they lead the two men down to the storerooms buried beneath the city that are heaped with treasure that belonged to Seconder, left behind and carefully guarded since 328 BC, all of which now belongs to Danny. So as you can imagine, Danny develops delusions of grandeur. He begins to think he really is a king, and he says he's a son of Alexander, at least in spirit. And as the months pass, Peachy is anxious to leave and escape with the treasure before winter closes the passes. But Danny's against it. He's really gotten in to this being a king and being a god. In fact, he tells Peachy that he should bow down before him, just like all the tribesmen do. And disgusted, Peachy decides and tells him he's going to leave the next day with as much treasure as he can load onto a baggage train of small mules. And despite Peachy's uh, warning and threat, Danny decides to take a wife. He sees the beautiful Roxanne, who in the movie is played by Michael Caine's wife. And Roxanne has this superstitious fear that if she marries a god, she'll be struck dead. So she tries frantically to escape. And uh, they capture her, and they force her to marry Danny. And in the middle of the wedding ceremony, she turns and bites him in the face. I don't recommend that for wedding ceremonies. But the bite draws blood. And when everyone sees it, they realize Danny is human after all. And they all get mad, and they start chasing them uh, out of the city. And uh, Peachy and Danny and Billy are soon captured. And because of his deception, Danny is forced to walk out to the middle of a rope bridge over a deep gorge, and he apologizes to Peachy before the monks cut the ropes, and he plunges to his death. They take Peachy, and they crucify him on two pine trees, but he's cut down the next day when he miraculously survives. And eventually he escapes and returns back to India and returns back to the office of Rudyard Kipling. And he tells this story of everything they went through and how they had, Danny had become the king. And as he finishes the story, Peachy presents Kipling with Danny's head, still wearing its crown, thereby proving the tale is true. Now, in the movie, Danny, again, who's played by Sean Connery, is a modern-day Haman. He starts off with next to nothing, but undertakes a grand scheme to become a king. He fools the people into thinking that not only is he the long-lost king, but he's also a god. However, eventually people discover the truth, and the tables are turned, and all is lost, and Danny is killed for his deception. His story parallels the life and death of Haman. Both are stories about the man who would be king. We pick up the story of Esther at the beginning of chapter 6. So far, we've seen Esther become queen, and Mordecai take a stand against uh, Haman. And while both of these actions look commendable, they're both filled with selfish, sinful choices that ultimately bring the Jewish people to the brink of destruction. Esther has hidden her faith by neither practicing it or proclaiming it, and Mordecai reveals his faith by upholding an age-old family grudge. And the result is a decree from the king calling for the slaughter of the Jews throughout the empire. Mordecai has now called on Esther to take a life or death risk and approach the king with their predicament. We saw that happen at the high point of the story three weeks ago in chapter 4, when we read at the end of chapter 4, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So even though Esther agrees to seek deliverance uh, from the king for her people, she hasn't made much progress so far. She's taken the initiative. She survived going to the king. And though he asked her what she wants, she merely invites him to a banquet. And again, at the banquet, he asked for her request, And she delays by inviting him to a second banquet the next day. And it's still far from clear at this point in the story whether or not she's going to pull uh, deliverance out from the jaws of disaster. So that brings us up to date. And it's now night between the two banquets. But for the Jews, it's been night for a while. There is an order for genocide for the slaughter of all the Jews in the empire hanging over their head, even though it's still several months away. And it's night for Mordecai, because even though uh, that neither he nor Esther are aware of it, Haman has built a gallows 75 feet high, and he's going to the king to arrange for Mordecai's execution. But God's still in it. And that continues to be revealed in this chapter. This chapter starts uh, in verse 1 with a night of discovery. A night of discovery. Starting there, it says, On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahas Urias. The king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Well, apparently, like the rest of us, kings occasionally have sleepless nights. But notice what kept the king awake. Was it his past problems, like losing the war to the Greeks? The text doesn't say. Was it the current issues plaguing the empire? The text doesn't say. Was it having to deal with all the concubines he collected? The text doesn't say. Was it still not knowing what Esther wanted? The text doesn't say. Was it regret over the genocidal order he issued against the Jews? The text doesn't say. Maybe the gallows being constructed on Haman's order kept him awake. And while that would be pretty ironic, the text doesn't say. We know from Daniel that King Nebuchadnezzar was kept awake by a dream from God in Daniel 2, and King Darius was kept awake worrying about Daniel in the lion's den in Daniel 6. So what was it that kept King Ahas Urias awake? The text doesn't say. There is no apparent reason for the king's sleeplessness except God's sovereign purpose to deliver his people. And so that night, the king can't sleep. So he orders the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. And it's found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh. We read about that at the end of chapter two. They were two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway and who had conspired to assassinate the king. So the first coincidence we find here, which is actually a demonstration of the providence of God, is that King Ahas Urias is sleepless in Susa. Now to be honest, wouldn't you expect that the king of the entire empire would choose something other than the ancient equivalent of the congressional record to deal with his insomnia? After all, he had unlimited resources. He could have easily called for fine cuisine or fine wine or minstrels or dancing girls. And I actually suspect that this choice is just another indication of his pride and ego. Since the record of his reign is written by lackeys who are trying to please the king in order to gain some personal advantage. So they always put the king in the best possible light. So, my take on this is that he decided to deal with his insomnia by hearing about how great he is. So, that's the first coincidence. King can't sleep. Calls for the record of memorable deeds. The second coincidence is that those reading to the king just. Happen to turn to the section that records Mordecai's exposure of the two officers who had tried to assassinate the king several years before. And the king inquires about what honor or reward had been given to Mordecai for this deed. For Persian kings are famous uh, for their diligence in rewarding people who serve them well. And truth be told, it's good for public relations and it's good for your personal safety. You want to reward those who save your life so that they will be motivated to save your life the next time. So King Ahas Urias asks what was done in this case, and he's told nothing was done for Mordecai. And you can almost imagine him. Now this is Xerxes as we know him, Ahas Urias in our story, the most powerful man in the world. And you can almost imagine him leaping out of bed and rushing out on the balcony You know, to get some fresh air and make demands, his servants in tow. And he's demanding that this omission be uh, corrected or fixed or rectified immediately. And just then another coincidence occurs. Haman just happens to enter the outer court or the courtyard below. Now, you remember his wife and friends suggested that he seek an audience with the king to ask permission to execute Mordecai. And he's wasted no time. He wants to be first on the king's agenda for the day. So before Haman can even ask his question, the king has one for him. The night of discovery is now over. A new dawn brings a morning of decision. A morning of decision. Look at verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, now the end of verse six is key because he's assuming the king's going to honor him. So he gets to pick the honor. Verse seven, And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horses you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew." who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Can't you just picture that scene? I mean, the king's on the balcony, looking down in the courtyard, wondering what he's going to do about this problem, when what to his wondering eyes should appear but little old Haman and eight tiny reindeer. Now, forget the reindeer part, but the rhyme worked. But Haman is there. So the king turns to him for advice. You can picture this. Haman, my man. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And immediately the wheels begin to spin in Haman's small mind. This is his lucky day. Who could the king possibly want to honor more than Haman himself? Sure, the king hasn't actually mentioned the name of the person he wants to honor, but, you know, he's probably just omitted the name to be taxful, you know, so Haman wouldn't be embarrassed about asking for what he really wanted. And so he outdoes himself, developing a plan that's going to feed his idol, which is public recognition, and stroke his ego. He doesn't show any of Esther's subtlety in leading the king on until he's sure his request would be granted. He plunges headlong into the answer. And notice, he doesn't ask for wealth or power, because as the second highest ranking official in the kingdom, he already has all that he can handle. Instead, he has to be treated like the king. And that's key. He suggests a royal robe that the king has worn, which means he gets to keep it because the king doesn't wear clothes that somebody else has worn. And the horse the king has ridden. And a royal crown, and the Hebrew makes it clear, the crown is on the horse's head. And the person should be led by one of the king's most trusted officials, and it should be proclaimed throughout the uh, streets that thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman's strength is not subtlety. This is truly a man who would be king. He's number two, but he really wants to be number one. And if he can't be number one, he wants to look like number one and be treated like number one. Now imagine Haman's joy when the king responds, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said. But then he hears these awful, unbelievable words and do so to Mordecai the Jew. And not just Mordecai the Jew, but the king adds, Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Haman knows that Mordecai sits at the king's gate. In fact, when Haman comes by, he sits there when everybody else stands. And then the king unwittingly drives the stake even further into Haman's heart. He says, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Haman has no options. He has to do exactly what he himself has suggested be done for himself, but he has to do it for his arch enemy. And the irony here is Delicious. His dream morning has turned into his worst nightmare. In fact, for Haman, it becomes a day of disgrace. Look at verses 11 uh, to the end, a day of disgrace. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, "'Morning, and with his head covered. "'And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends "'everything that had happened to him. "'And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, "'If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, "'is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, "'but will surely fall before him.' "'While they were yet talking with him, "'the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried "'to bring Haman to the feast.' that Esther had prepared. Now, if I was using book titles instead of movie titles for this series, I would have called this part Haman's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I mean, for the rest of the day, Haman becomes the servant of Mordecai. He has to lead him through the streets, telling people to honor Mordecai. The one thing Mordecai wouldn't do for Haman, honor him, Haman has to tell everyone else to do, For Mordecai. And you can just see Mordecai's own words have come back to haunt him. And the phrase, he's so delighted to tell the king, must now taste like ashes in his mouth by the end of this long day, shouting it in front of Mordecai. And at the end of the day, the two men go their separate ways. And I find it interesting that verse 12 says, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. It's as though the author is saying, no big deal for Mordecai. He doesn't live for that kind of admiration. He isn't going to quit his uh, job like the average lottery winner and you know move on up to the east side. Okay, older people got that. He goes right back to work at the King's Gate, which is essentially serving as a judge, a minor magistrate in the uh, ancient Near Eastern equivalent of the courthouse. And I think What's really going on is Mordecai really can't rejoice in this reversal of fortune because his people still stand under a sentence of genocide. But in contrast, we're told Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. He's humiliated, demoralized, devastated. He pours out his anguish to his wife and friends. And once again, they're so helpful. Here's their insight. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Oh, great. They're just a little bit late with this advice. Please note, these are the same clowns who the night before urged Haman to feed his idol by building a gallows 75 feet high so everyone in the city could see it and having Mordecai hung on it. But now, they become the bearers of theological wisdom. They tell Haman about the Abrahamic covenant, where God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When you think about it, I'm not sure how Haman's wife and friends know this. They're not in Israel. They're in Persia. Now, how do they know that the Jewish people are God's chosen people and that while God will allow them to be disciplined, he will never allow them to be exterminated? Perhaps they knew it all along and only discovered that day that Mordecai was Jewish. I don't know. More likely, I think they're just blowing with the wind. When it seemed that Haman was in the king's favor, they were completely supportive of Haman, and now that he's in trouble, they're ready to bail out on him. And that's how the chapter ends. The sixth chapter ends our final scene. Uh, While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. It's the only mention of Esther in the chapter. Unfortunately, you're going to have to wait to discover what happens at Haman's Last Supper. The tables continue to turn, not just for Haman, but also for Esther and Mordecai and for the Jewish people as a whole. And the truth of Psalm 7, our responsive reading this morning, as Dave Kaminsky said, the responsive reading normally has something to do with the sermon. And it does today, coincidentally. But it comes into play here in the book of Esther. If we read again the end of that psalm, and it's printed in your bulletin, it says, Behold, the wicked man conceives conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Psalm 7 could have been written about Haman. And of course, how it ends, I I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. We thank God for turning the evildoer back upon himself. That God's righteousness causes those who plot evil against the Lord and against his people for that evil to be turned back upon him. It says his mischief returns upon his own head. And that's what's going to happen here. Now, I want to focus on a couple of things from our text today by way of application, and I want to go back to those seeming coincidences that we find in the text and deal with the question of coincidence or providence. See, God's providence is seen in even those seemingly insignificant coincidences of life. The tables begin to turn in chapter 6, but Esther doesn't get the credit. You know, she's only briefly mentioned in the chapter. The entire shift of fortune for Mordecai and for the Jewish people hinges upon a case of insomnia, and then a weird choice of reading material, and then a chance meeting of the king and Haman in the early morning. Are these true coincidences? I don't think so. Not even for a moment. The fingerprints of God are all over this story, and they're all over your life if you'll open your eyes to see them. Now, I'm not suggesting we try to read divine meaning into every single minute detail of life. I think that's a futile way of life, just trying to figure that out. I'm not saying God's not involved in that. I'm just saying you're not going to get that all the time. But I do believe that we need to have a settled confidence that God is working, and for the most part, working quietly to achieve his purposes in our lives. The word luck shouldn't be in our theological vocabulary. One commentator wrote perceptively, previously in Israel's history, God had used mighty miracles to deliver his people and fulfill his purposes. In the story of Esther, God is using the ordinary events of life to realize his covenant promises to his people. What a great God we serve. Any deity worth his salt can do a miracle now and then our god is so great so powerful that he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of human life through the ordinary passage of time to accomplish his eternal purposes and ancient promises remember where we started with the story by rudyard kipling and his two friends peachy carnahan and danny dravat they went to kafiristan Pretended to be warrior kings, pretended to be gods, and let people treat them that way. And in the end, they ultimately lost everything, just like Haman. Humanly speaking, Haman's fall isn't very predictable. He seems to have it all fame, wealth, position, honor, and yet in the space of 24 hours, he loses it all. But in the Bible, humanly speaking, is never a restriction. Even in a book like Esther, where God's never mentioned, and the characters in the story, even his own people, do their best to ignore him, and yet he refuses to be written out of the script. Between the lines, behind the scenes, out of focus, incognito, the Lord continues to accomplish all his holy will. And here we see the invisible hand of God changing days and decisions, various events in people's lives. And yes, it's an oxymoron to say that we see an invisible hand. But as with other invisible things like the wind, the trail left in its wake is unmistakably clear. And so too here in the book of Esther, God's providence is so clear that even the pagans can't miss it. Even Haman's friends aren't so dumb that they write it off to coincidence. They know all of this has to be attributed to the intervention of the God of Israel and that once he gets involved, the outcome's never in doubt. The text doesn't tell us uh, how Haman's wife and friends discern the hand of God in this, but I think it's striking how quickly they put two and two together to come up with the right answer. Now, their swiftness, To believe in the action and power of God at work stands in marked contrast to the slowness of God's own people. Yes, there's been fasting and mourning, but there's been precious little calling out uh, to God on the basis of faith in his promises. Even in Mordecai's appeal to Esther to intervene with the king, there's no direct reference to God or to his faithfulness as the source of their confidence. As hard as it is to understand, the pagans seem quicker to believe that Israel's God would act than his own people do. Which leaves us with the question, what about us? Are we as quick to spot the hand of God at work as were Haman's wife and friends? Or are we as slow to believe as Mordecai and the Jews were? They didn't get it and they were God's covenant people. And as God's covenant people today, we should have the unshakable confidence that no matter the situation, God will act decisively to bring about the salvation of his people. And this confidence should uh, drive us to boldly act in faith, and yet the reality is we easily get thrown uh, by the circumstances in our lives, and circumstances cause us to lose faith. And yet if we're exalting Christ as Lord of our lives, as we profess we do, and if we're trusting God's providence to do what's best for us, and if we believe that God is going to bring glory and not disgrace to his name, then why are we so troubled? Why are we so easily filled with doubt? Why is it so hard to trust God with our futures or the futures of our children or the future of our church? God will accomplish his purposes usually slowly, often imperceptible imperceptibly shouldn't have put that word in there it's too hard to say but always with certainty and sometimes he does it through the collaboration of a whole series of seemingly insignificant circumstances you know as i told you earlier we started a campaign about the future of the church And we're going to learn about the story of the church. And we're going to learn about how to trust God in the present. And we'll learn more about how to exercise faith in God's promises, that he'll accomplish his purposes, and that he will use ordinary people like us in ordinary ways, in the ordinary passage of time, with our ordinary gifts and talents, to do what he wants done. How's God going to use you? After all, he brought you here for such a time as this. It's in God's providence that you live here. It's in God's providence that you come to this church. It's in God's providence that you know these people. It's in God's providence that you worship him. And I have absolutely no idea how God is going to use you. But if I were you, based on reading Esther, I'd start praying. That's what I would do. And ask God, how are you going to use me? And I think now would be a good time to start doing that. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again we confess as we move through this book of Esther, we do so with a sense of fear. We know you've hidden things here that are difficult for us to grasp, and yet we're continuing to sense something of your heart in this story. Help us to see that it's a story about us. Help us to understand you're just as active in our lives as you were in the lives of Esther and Mordecai and Haman and the king. Father, you're the God who's vitally engaged in determining and directing uh, our very steps in this life. You're the God who's working all things together after the counsel of your own holy and perfect will. You're the God who's working all things for your glory and for our good. You're the God who opens doors that no man can shut and shuts doors that no man can open. Lord, this morning we're asking that you would be in the details of our life together, that you would be in the details of our decisions Thank you that you're the Lord of all things, including each one of us and each one of our families and all of our church. And for that, we're truly grateful. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.